way back to Fifi. Helen Town, way back to Fifi. Sophia Town. Welcome to From the Hip. I'm Benji Moody, and I'm so glad that you could join me as we journey through the music world of the last 50 years, as well as pages from my own personal adventures. I spent most of my life working in the music industry, firstly as a budding but failed musician, sadly unsuccessfully, but notably working with hands-on with many great South African artists, and none bigger than Mango Groove, a band that came to define South Africa in the state of transition. They provided the definitive soundtrack to our first democracy and along the way wrote some classic songs that still resonate across the ages, races and trends today. But like all good fairy tales, there's a beginning, a middle and an end. But with Mango Groove, there is no end in sight. So let's start at the beginning and along the way explore what makes them tick. I'm very proud to host a long overdue sit-down with John Layden, founder and bassist, and Claire Johnston, lead vocalist from Mango Groove. Hello. Hi, hi, hi. At last. (laughs) At last. What a joy. thank you for those very kind words, Benji. Way too kind. Very, very kind (laughs) words. Thank you. Collectively, we all go back together 33 years or so. Amazing. But John, Mm. I remember meeting you... Much earlier than that, with one of your earliest bands, Pet Frog. Yeah, okay, we're into this sort of embarrassing history now. <laughs> uh, I was hoping and, you wouldn't go there. An outfit that made a single album yeah. and then disappeared. Mm. I think I saw you at Vits, if I'm not mistaken. We did Vits. Yeah, we did the swimming pool there. Luckily, we weren't oh. pushed in. It was kind of like a scar, a bit yeah, of a kanga, new wave. wave. Yeah, and in fact, I remember um, <clears throat> we, we were so delighted when Gus Silver wrote a great big double colour feature. We were the height of pretension. We were crossed between sort of punk, but of queer punk and new romanticism, and we even had those funny trousers and everything. And um, <laughs> I remember the, the article he wrote, which if... Certainly, if I'd taken it seriously, I would never, I would have stopped being in music from that day. It was like literally, you know, this must not go anywhere. So, anyway, I'm glad I ignored his. It was a very accurate portrayal. But Well, you know, know the Frog album fetches top dollar as a vinyl record these never. days. Never. Really? Absolutely. Oh. At least 500 rand. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Who was with you in that band? And, and did any of those players that were with you? Mm kind of move with you into the first incarnation of Mango Groove. They did, actually. Well, it was really, in particular, Bertrand Mouton, who was, I was at school with uh, at mm. Saints, and then, um, you know, he picked up the sax, and we, you know, it was really just falling in love with music as the band, and, you know, that very much that punk ethos of even if you don't know any music theory or anything, if you even know two chords, you, um, I happen to know three, and still only do. <laughs> so Bertrand came, and then it was Andrew Craggs who moved over to the States, and but that was very much the early beginning. It was, um, um, but Bertrand came through on the sax side, and then you know the whole long, messy, chaotic history started from there. So, did you ever see them, Claire? I, you know, I, I wish I had, because mm. I, I, you know, John talks about it being pretentious and posy and all of that. I would would have loved it. I would have been what, fifteen, sixteen years old, and I would have mm. just thought this was the coolest thing in the world. So, no, I'm oh. sorry, I missed that. <laughs> who, who were you looking at at, at that particular time? I who was, were you following? I was following people like Petit Cheval and um, Evoid and Duran Duran, and I was into the whole new romantic sort of post-punk thing. Um, with lots of angst and, and good looking guys wearing girls, sort of semi girls clothes and lots of makeup. I thought that was very, very, very cool back then. But you didn't have a wham poster on your wall, did you? I didn't, but I came close. But I did have Duran Duran all over my wall yeah, and avoid. Yeah. And avoid. And avoid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They made great posters. Oh. Yep. They did. Would it be safe to say, John, that elements of what you were doing with Pet Frog yeah. 
was sort of one of the embryos of the future mango group sound. Absolutely. I mean, one in, in a way was the ethos, if I can you know, pretentiously call it that. But the, the sort of driving force of mango has always been eclecticism. And if you look at the actual spirit of punk, particularly British punk, that really was, as I said, if you can vaguely play a guitar, you know, write your own songs, don't cover any. I still don't know how to cover any artist. And at the same time, you know, that, that whole spirit of the, the specials and that whole post-punk new wave thing was very much about musical eclecticism. It was very much about having something to say about your environment. And that definitely fed, that ethos definitely fed into Mango, that sort of anarchy, cultural anarchy thing. And then likewise, um, your know, musically as well, we did the really, it has, I mean, this absolute sort of massacre of a, a genre, but we did this song called Quella Question Mark. And the question mark was very pretentious in those days. Like, you know, and it really it was a very valid question mark, actually, looking back. Uh, like, what is this? But um, yeah, so that was literally that. So this strange sort of three chord punk thing that slows up and speeds down. And anyway, so yeah, no, very definitely that will, it will carry. Well, through. I read somewhere that you, you used to hang out at, at the old Gallo building down in yes. Street. Yeah. I, I worked there. That, oh, in, amazing. In that, building. And that old studio down at the bottom. Yeah, in the early, early yeah. 70s, which is a long time mm. ago. And there you met a lot of African musicians, including yeah. Big Voice Jack and Leroy and, and Mickey yes. Villacazzi. And yes, absolutely, um, Benjamin. To take you back, in fact, the, my childhood, okay, I'm not South African born, I was born in Zambia. Right. And I very much grew up on that urban South African sound of, um, because my mum and dad used to go to Johannesburg, they'd come back with nice sweets and all sorts of stuff. And they came back with these albums. And obviously, it was the Miriam Makeba, it was the Spokesmashiani, Little Amy Special. I still remember all the the covers and all that sort of stuff. And I absolutely fell in love with those music forms. And then actually as well, probably one of my favorite, if you ever want to understand Mango, listen to this album. It's a swinging safari album with Bert <laughs> Kampfert, you know, which is, <laughs> to me, it's a masterpiece of recording, arrangement, and it, no, it's schlock city. Oh, yeah. But um, in a way that also fed into the whole thing. And then it was that sort of funny linear thing that just wove its way through. Well, I found it quite intriguing that in the 80s, most young people were, were listening to, to New Wave and, mm. and punk and that. And you were listening and being influenced from a completely different genre yeah. and time zone. Yes, it was a strange sort of uh, marriage. And obviously, simultaneously with that punk thing, that carried through as well into the sort of South African punk scene. I always remember Young, Dumb and Violent, which is a great name. Oh, Wild Youth. And then obviously um, Asylum Kids. And that real sort of sense of music being more than music. And it was part of uh, resistance to authority. And it was just a, it was a very heady mixture of things now that, uh, you know, then that I think we've lost now in a way. But well, I think I meant the South African punk movement, if we use that word mm. uh, sort of loosely, with Young, Dumb and Violent, uh, Dog Detachment, yeah. oh, Asylum the Kids and everything, had, a, had a different kind of political, social yes. edge to mm. it mm. than British punk. Yeah. You know, with, um, just explain the difference between Quela and Marabi and okay, Mbakanga. That's actually, yeah, that's a, it's something we're working through at the moment. I mean, Quela is very actually just the penny whistle sound. It's that little street kids of uh, the streets of Joburg. It's that sort of three chord bittersweet penny whistle music, normally a normally a swing feel in it. So you'll, there's a lot of swing and manga. And then Marabi's that more obviously sort of post-World War II came out of that whole sort of Glenn Miller sound, that African jazz big band sound. And we, we've definitely married both in, in manga style. And they did, they've carried through with all whatever, uh, you know, whatever other influences we've thrown in. So Quella's the penny whistle and Marabi is the, the big band. Because on paper, I mean, the mixture of that mm. and pop, 
shouldn't really work, but it does. commercial suicide. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in your case, it wasn't suicide. It was superstardom in in, in your thing. Early mango, I joked Mm. with somebody the other day, you're a little bit like, um, what was that documentary, that rock documentary with the exploding drummers? Oh, Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap. A lot of people people Mm. came through the ranks. Um, The the early mango with you and Bert, and and then I think uh, uh, Mickey joined. Is that right, Mickey? In fact, it was it probably actually started with Jack LaRoli. So, okay. and you're right, we went to that lovely old Gallo building. I think it was in Kirk Street. Kirk and Kirk. And um, there was a place they called Loafers Corner, which was basically where unemployed musicians used to hang around. So <laughs> that's where we hooked up with Jack. And then what it sort of started after that, Benji, was a real happenstance, hit and miss, organic. We call it the sort of bring a friend ethos, which completely governed the whole of Mango's trajectory. So, I mean, a cost of thousands have come and gone. I, I talk of it as a sort of a Bernardo's home for lost and transient musicians. So people would come and go. They'd bring their friends. I've got this guy who plays guitar. And it really did just happen like that, you know, through the years. Claire was very much part of that. We, we you know, we'll, you can get onto that, Claire, but I mean, it's uh, very organic. That's the key thing. So everyone brought in different things yeah. before they left. Yeah, yeah, that was it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Jack eventually left saying he, uh, he just disappeared. And I think he went on a sort of theatre circuit with Gibson right. Kente or something. He just turned up again after months. And I sort of said, you know, what the F? Um, Jack, you know what happened to you? And he said, no, he hurt his toe. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, as Monty Python says, in the meantime, um, Claire, you, you came from a completely different music world. I did. Theatre, number one. Yes. I think you were in some early pop bands. Mm. I was in a, a teenage cover band. Right. I'm not sure if we were ever any good, and we mostly rehearsed. And I don't think anyone ever paid us anything. Those days you just love rehearsing. Just we, rehearsed. we can't get us into a rehearsal room with a crowd. No, I, I had abandoned Brack. <laughs> I had abandoned Springs that mm. was together for a year. We mm. never played a gig. No, no, it was just a hangout, wasn't it? <laughs> no. Everybody, everyone else came and hung around. I actually missed those days. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who were your your early influences growing up as a singer? Well, this is where Mango made a lot of sense to me musically. Is I was brought up on people like Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong. And when I met Mango for the first time, I'd already seen them perform. But when I actually met them and I met Mickey, particularly Mickey Villagazi, I felt like I was meeting a jazz legend, mm. which I sort of was really. Real old school. Had, 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 he had served in World War II in the entertainment corps. He'd lived the life. And so I was very open to all of that. And that probably also made my mum sort of supportive as well. So it wasn't hard rock music or anything like that. It, right. it had a different sort of style um, and and yeah it, it, it spoke to me in in many ways so it, you brought a lot of the pop influence into into mango groove then i mean i i guess in terms of what i wanted to wear and things like that right. but i also you know I, I also grew up as i say on on Ella Fitzgerald and doris day and, and loved mm. a good old sort of yeah that's a key element kind I mean, of... to understand mango it, i mean yes claire brought that completely distinct pop focus to a sort of ramshackle instrumental again band. in theory it shouldn't have worked no no yeah no, this is <laughs> i all, mean you know, you know statistically. but then, then the nine muses interceded here and yeah. you guys met <laughs> and what was that first rehearsal like? Well, interestingly, the, they couldn't hear me. Um, there was no microphone. There was no microphone for me. So the, the, the band, and it was, I think, eight of us back then. Dorkay I was the, House. Dorkay oh, House. The famous Dorkay mm. House. And I was the only girl back then. They only heard me sing for the first time at the gig. Mm. And I remember Mickey said, what did Mickey say? He said, she sings like a nightingale. Mm. And I took that to be a wow. huge compliment. But Claire, you know, you're talking the pop focus and obviously the having a lead voice. 
you know, Claire, for me, also stylistically, there's obviously that Ella Fitzgerald, Doris Day thing, which has got that timeless sort of reach back to the 40s. That also was very appropriate for me. And um, also stylistically, Claire combined that sort of 80s, Debbie <laughs> Harry, glam punk trash thing with a genuine sort of 40s, 50s movie mm. poster glam. Well, this I want to talk a little bit more thing, about no. that, the, the styling of that no. a little bit later. But did you have a vision or plan of what you wanted Mango to be, what it would sound like? Was it something or was it something that developed organically as you all worked together? It did sort of, yeah. In a way, it was limited by, I mean, say if I wrote a song, it was literally limited by the chords I knew. <laughs> so I made a virtue out of a necessity in a way. But right. so but I would say those, those initial influences, they just fed in. And that sort of worked also given the artists we were working with. I mean, someone like Jack LaRoli is, in my view, the greatest penny whistler ever to come out of South Africa, probably even more so than Spokes Mashiani. And so those influences fed in. So you had that, that constant set of influences coming in. And but there was and, and then equally down the line, Benji, I mean, and you were very much part of this journey. People came into this thing and sought and just took it to a different level. So in, mm. in fact, as much as it was a sort of relatively single minded sense of things, it was also so many people became part of what Mango did become part of it. There were so many inputs in a way. So it was a funny mixture of uh, and that of early things. that early thing that I became a part of in 1985 was it was chaos. Mm. It was absolutely shambolic, mm. and yet it worked. Yeah. <laughs> And actually, the song base would, was probably, by then you look at songs like Love Is, Two Hearts, Island Boy, Do You Dream Of Me. We'd already done embryonic versions of those anyway. So in mm. a funny way, that initial, that was very much set up in terms of a style. And then the, Now, the know, band at that point, there was both of you. The, Alan uh, Lazar was in the band. Was Alan he joined when? Alan joined in 86. Now, he you and brought I, Alan. Yes, I brought, I brought mm. Alan. Alan was my, the friend I brought along, exactly. Right. He and I had been in a teenage band, one, the, the, the band that rehearsed constantly. Mm. Right. And then we were at Varsity together and Alan approached me and said, I'm, I kind of like what's, what you, you guys are doing with Mango. And mm -hmm. I introduced him to John and he and John got on like a house on fire. And that was the beginning of the Alan, of the Alan, Alan, Alan story. Bingham. And Absolutely. again, that was an, an integral part of the songwriting team that developed. Yeah, and also very much that sort of, uh, Alan's an incredibly sort of gifted and technically brilliant player as well as being hugely creative. And I mean, mm -hmm. he brought in that sort of hard pop thing as well, you know, that keyboards and the sounds and the production. Arrangement and, and all of that sort of... And then that funny sort of student, student <laughs> idealism, social justice, whatever thing that also fed in. It was, and that's the other thing. So many perspectives fed into Mango. You know, people mm. were doing it for different reasons. We had different goals. You know, some of us wanted to meet goals or whatever. That was the weirdest thing. It was a broad church. That's a term we like to use. Just lots that's of a good people fed into this thing. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I tell you, I, I ask about Alan because I didn't recall that he had been in the earlier version. I thought he had been in it until I saw the Two Hearts video. Mm. And I saw which I, th I think I've told you about, the mm. 80s version yeah. of, of Two Hearts. And there he is in the background mm. looking young and dapper mm. and bouncing around as yeah. only uh, as yeah. only Alan, <laughs> Alan can. So in I think it was 85 or 86 when you signed your first deal. Yes. Was that oh, the Sonovision no, deal? Hang on. You didn't – you had a – Oh, God. Well, was even, was one before, even earlier. Before I right. joined fact, the band, they had a record deal. We did a version of Dance Small, Can You Believe It, oh, with right. Big Voice Jack doing the droning thing. We did it at Sackbell Studios. A recent time with this, after uh, Graceland had been recording there. And, in fact, Jack had come out of working with Malcolm McLaren on the Duck Rock album. 
Again, people who fed in from that time. So we did a version of Dance Some More, pre-Claire, pre-Alan, pre-absolutely everyone, with the Mahotella Queen singing it's Dance Some More. It's absolutely brilliant. It, if I can find a vinyl of that. It's absolutely that. stunning. Mm. Mm, and it I became love it. a sort of obscure Cape Town hit, well, I think in one club at least, but anyway. Oh, but no, it was, I remember that. Yeah, it had a sort of a weird thing, and that was that's just all fed in, didn't it? Mm-hmm. It was like a strange thing. And then you went through that process of, you had Son of Vision, mm-hmm. uh, and you had the Two Hearts and a couple mm-hmm. of Julian other Laxton. singles. Julian Laxton. Mm-hmm. And uh, with lots of echo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> lo- loved Julian Laxton, Laxton, Laxton. And then you moved to Priority Records, which That's right. was a label that we distributed with Bill, uh, yes, Bill Brooks. Bill, Bill Brooks, Brooks. Yes, that's there. right. And that's when I connected again when I saw you yeah. as a band. Mm. Now, that version of the band was both of you plus mm. Alan, yes. as well as George Lewis. Yep. Yes, Banza. Banza Hassane, Sipo Bengu. And mm. uh, Gavin Stevens, I think, and was in Duvizio the band. Yeah, yep. It was almost the manga you know minus the BVs who joined us later. Is my right, Claire? Yeah. Now, you did a few singles there, but there was no album. What happened there? The album was sort of there, and it just didn't... We even did album sleeves and everything. I think we've still got the artwork. So, yeah, that was literally a, a false start in a way. It's that same thing, Benji. It all fed in. You just talk about Julian Laxton, who... Every person you work with, they they bring something to it. It's like a, it's like we're sort of this Velcro thing moving forward, and little you know things sort of stick on it, yeah. on the way. And it's just yeah. a, it's interesting that you go back on these things and you realise mm. how how many people were part of the thing. The band had been going roughly about six or seven years at that particular point yeah. before you mm-hmm. met Robert Schroeder. Yes. Well, that that was eighty. Was it eighty eight? Eighty eight. You met yeah. Robert Schroeder. Yeah. Yes. How did that? Now that was an interesting thing. Mm. So we're coming up to the part where I meet yes. you. Stave Records, which mm. was with Robert. If I'm not mistaken, it was one of the first one hundred percent sponsorship deals. Yes. Of of a project. It was. I know actually, he had done yeah. Richard John Smith. Yes, he'd before. done that on. And, and so, in other words, um, Robert approached us. I think apparently initially told us he was thinking bright blue, and we very luckily got in there. <laughs> yeah, we snuck in. There's another huge influence on Mango, by the way. I mean, I just oh, love, love the writing. The and obviously, Peter became part of the band. Right. But it was actually a sort of. Um, it was a. Film movie funding, almost like a tax loophole in a way. Mm, mm, that if were, you yeah, had to I do, and I think it then got sort of ruthlessly exploited by all sorts of people. Um, but that was what it did. You had to spend the money, and it was sort of linked to incentives for the South African movie industry. And then they applied that to. Um, yeah, so Robert was an absolute massive, massive. I mean, he's a, the dearest of friends to this day, and yeah. no one has a more total sense of of the industry, I think, than, than Robert, you know, mm. the publishing side and all that stuff. And he was the absolute massive turning point. And, you know, we're close to this day, but you, that, you're right. That was a watershed moment. And also, I mean, that gave you the opportunity, I mm. guess, to curate exactly uh, what Mango would mm. sound like. What's the matter with you? Dance, my pretty, dance, my model. Get clever, wait a 
have to ask you this because I remember when I went to America in mm. I think it was 1990 and the, uh, Atco wanted to sign yes. Mango. Yeah. yeah. And I remember Derek Shulman, the president of ADCO, saying, what is with this 11-piece band? Uh, <laughs> and then you think about it. I mean, Mango were very unique mm. on a number of levels. Yeah. First of all, you were the biggest band around. Yeah. Second of all, you were only one of two integrated bands. Yeah. So mm. Johnny being mm. the other one. Yes. And that, let's be honest, in, in 89, 88, 89, that was an anomaly in mm. South Africa. Was. So it gave you time. Did you actually sit down and go, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have a three-piece horn section. We're going to have three girl singers. Or is that something, again, that just kind of that was That was already mostly there. The right. only real conscious thing after the recording of that album, that album that actually got released, was the, the sense of we need to add the three backing singers mm. to our live show. We need to sound like the album. Right. But other than that, it was already yeah. what it was. Because, Benji, I mean, that album, and you would know this, because, uh, I mean, it just went, you know, it was like, Super no, but sonic. I mean, there were just so, every everyone in, in virtually the whole country performed on that album. I mean, there were choirs and gumboot sections <laughs> and every horn player. We just wore it. It was just a complete sort of chaotic, wonderful, glorious fest, you know, because we actually had the means to do it. Yeah, so it was a, it was quite a thing. So we we had to then actually think, oh God, we have to sound like this live. You know? <laughs> but and yet, and that special star was done exactly as you hear it. That was a completely that live was actually recorded, recorded live. live yeah, take. yeah. Mm. Wow. One of the most interesting things is, is that how you got with Chris Burkett, the producer. Yes. Mm. And I think that was a masterstroke to bring yes. somebody in to do mixes. Absolutely. Because South African music, as you know back mm. then, suffered mm. during the cultural boycott. Yes. yes. With, in terms of the ability to mix properly the yes. way that they yeah. do I mean, overseas. Chris That's brought right. a completely new dimension and, and a really tough, hard sort of 80s pop edge to it. You know, he'd come fresh from the big Sinead O'Connor album. Right. And uh, yeah, a very interesting ca character. He used to eat raw onions all day, and I mean, literally eat them like <laughs> oh, apples. Yeah, so yeah. So you can imagine what that studio is not like. When we <laughs> Did you fight a lot in the studio? <laughs> Um, or, or you and Alan like just forceful about? Did you say fight or fight? I wasn't. I also wasn't <laughs> no. sure if you said fight Christ or fight. Is it bad pronunciation? Onion story. I would say not. You know, because you can have you 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 have creative disagreements or whatever. And I mean, I think part of the creative process is being wrong about ninety eight percent of the time. You know, not being fussed by that. But no, not really, because there was such a wave of enthusiasm, and actually looking back on it, quite sort of embarrassing arrogance and you know literally that immortality we can do anything those are sort of the funny swashbuckling things so i mean we'd have disagreements but dominantly alan and i clicked on many levels he's, he, you know he's yeah i mean so, he must have, what did he think of this poikikos kind of merger of musics that you had come up with i mean he's an english guy done sinead o'connor alice yeah. Boyer, you know straightforward pop i'd say the most interesting thing about our South African musical roots as they themselves, you know, we're very much urban influenced. In other words, this is not a, it's not a Johnny Clegg. It's not a Zulu thing. Mm. It's not a Lady Smith, Black Mambo's. It's not the, or, or Soul Brothers for that matter. Ours were early urban music forms. And in fact, I call it the golden age of South African music because there were the sort of half a dozen songs that were global hits. Mm. You had The Lion Sleeps Tonight, obviously. You had the Swing Safari album, which was the Burt Capital, which was massive, massive, massive. You had, um, Tom Hawk. Again, massive British hit all around the world. Zambezi was another huge one. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Skokion was a huge one. Everyone from Doris Day to, to Louis Armstrong to, you know, they Bill did Haley that. Bill yeah, Exactly. So in other words, even if people didn't know it, they picked, I think they heard those influences. Oh, hang on, you know. They, so there was enough 
there were enough points of contact there, I think, for people to actually, it was sort of familiar in a way, hopefully not too plagiarised. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, so. but, I mean, Mango is as much a look mm. as a sound. Yeah. Highly stylized, yeah. right? Stage outfits, the videos. Mm. Who directed the fashion side of the band? Was that you, Claire? No, well, initially it was, it was when I joined the band, it was, you know, the guys were wearing... Tuxes. Either you're wearing tuxes or, fact, trop- or uh, tropical shirts. Yeah, we did the sort of tropical or the tux thing. <clears> but in fact, I mean, when we were doing the tux thing, we were often doing shows. I mean, we were called over because people thought we were serving food at the restaurant. No, that's right. <laughs> oh, no. no, absolutely. <laughs> so, but yeah, they, what's that uh, big band, Tux Urban? Urban's the key, you know, it really is that sense of those styles. It's the big band look, the New York column, zoot suity. We had that, and then I think the moment we recorded that album that that went so big, um, there was a styling budget. So all of a sudden we could, you know, actually spend some money. So I just probably just ramped up what I was already doing, right. which was trying to be glamorous and edgy all at once. If well, that's, that's what you were known for. I mean, you, you you have a very distinctive look that was modelled on the cinematic and fashion icons, mm. absolutely. Greta Garbo, mm. uh, um, Hedy Lamarr, Marilyn, etc., etc. What is it about that period that's so inspirational to you? We don't have icons like that anymore in, in, in no. terms of film and, and, yeah. and music. What is it about that look that's so appealing to you? My goodness, it takes time to create a look like that. And, I mean, who has time anymore to do these sorts of things? Yeah. But I think in terms of when I was having any sense of myself as being on stage, I did want to be glamorous. I did want to be interesting. I did I was brought up on a, a lot of those visuals, a lot of that, that sort of my mum was very glamorous. And then, of course, I encountered Debbie Harry from Blondie in the 70s, and she took it to a different level. She was glamorous, but she took it super street and edgy. So I always loved that as well. So I was always, you know, I think one's always a bit of a work in progress, especially when you start out, you're, you're, you're copying other people. Mm. And then hopefully you find your own way. And uh, that's an ongoing journey. <laughs> Well, you certainly do. So the album's done, the video's done. You know the story about how I came into this, do you? I think so. So uh, okay, so, so, Roddy comes to see okay, me. Yes. I, I knew Roddy involved, yeah. yeah. So Roddy came to see me about Mark Alex. Mm. Yes. And he said, I can't stay long. I've got to leave early. I've got to go to Gallo. And, mm. and I said, why are you going to Gallo? Being the inquisitive person that I am. He said, well, we're signing Mango Groove to Gallo. Mm. And I went, Mango Groove? Oh, that was okay, gosh. And... Um, oh. He said, yeah. I said, well, what are they doing now? He said, have you got 10 minutes? I said, yeah. Mm. He put on Dance Some More mm. and he put on Hellfire. Mm. And I remember sitting there going, oh, my God, mm. this is going to be huge. I'd never mm. seen anything like yeah. it. And, I mean, you've got to understand, I, be, I, I was working in a major international company yes. that was mm. exposed mm. to so many different things. So I said, what are Gala offering you? Mm. And he said, well, you better speak to Robert. And then Robert came on the phone and, and um, Robert said, this is what Gallo were offering. And I, I gave him, I said, I'll do that number and that number and that number. And that was it. Mm. And I remember him saying, how can you do this to me? Yeah. I'm about to go and do it. I said, yeah. I promise you this is going to yeah. be, we'll make it huge. That's how I got involved. That's in amazing. I thought That's we you. were going to be good. Mm. For a gold album. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I that would have no, got me down with a feather. I had no know? expectations mm. about what yeah, was go- about to happen. Mm. But Benji, you brought up, I mean, it's two because there was the Robert factor, the money came in, 
we were able to do what we liked, so we were able to give full voice to this bizarre, fragmented sort of creative <laughs> thing. Yeah, it's, we spoke about people who you look back on who have come in and then become part of that journey. Yeah. Uh, again, Roddy, obviously, I mean, he brought sure. pivotal music management style eventing, and he really, to me, he managed that fabulously through how the thing was done in terms of the scale of it and the production, mm. all that sort of stuff, and, and keeping it exclusive. And, and similarly yourself, in other words, that Absolutely. was another key turning point mm. where we brought in through yourself and what you saw in it, just that uh, that different level that really... So it was like a perfect storm in a way, in the best possible way. Well, everyone harnessed. Way. Yeah. You know, exactly. Mango had the music and everything. I mean... Mm. Then we had the Coke commercials yeah, came in with exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Mango had the music and the styling and, yeah. and the look and the brand. Mm. Uh, Roddy had that managerial yeah. skill. We came in with... A full. I've never seen so many people in one company be mm. totally committed mm. to yeah. a project. Yeah, Everyone it was, was just that. fabulous that. Yeah. And I think when you get that meeting yeah. together, yeah. Then, then magic works. And, yeah. and I mean, it did. Mm. I mean, the first single, Dance Some More, exploded the album. Hellfire yeah. exploded mm. the album. And then, and then, <laughs> then came then, <laughs> then, then came the opus. But you've been quoted as saying that Mango were not a political band. Some of the songs mm. in the videos had a strong social message. Hellfire, which I watched again. Yesterday, mm. Kevin place. wrote those words. Actually, uh, Kevin Bush, yeah. Kevin Bush, who used to work for me. Yes, uh, oh, yes that's right. Course. He worked for me when twice. He was in in the, in the, youth. Yeah, before he went to the army. Yeah, <laughs> oh, oh my goodness, how so yeah. connected all these. Yeah, so I love yeah. it. And I watched that video again. Mm. I thought, wow, that's so powerful. Mm. And I mean, of course, another country itself yeah. is is a very very powerful. Was that intentional, or was that just again just a product of the core of your beliefs? As people, look. I mean, from my perspective, as the I joined the band at I was at school. Um, I was seventeen and clueless. Um, but I think the moment you're back in those days, back in 1985, the moment you are black and white South Africans doing apartheid South Africa, doing anything together, that is the political statement right there. Mm-hmm. That's the political statement. You don't need to do anything more than that. You know, we weren't overt. We didn't have to be. The message was it sort spoke of clear. For itself, yeah. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I, I see it almost. As an, I'm looking back on it because we're doing some of this archiving now and research for for you know another project we're looking at, and it was almost like a bizarre dissonance that you could have that sort of high pop glam, mm. uh, frothy whatever it was combined with political content. In a way, though, I think some of that was fed in by the sort of bit student activism thing. But I think it was the, the South Africa in the 80s. You couldn't but be political in some way. So it just simply fed into everything. And it, there was a sort of a battle versus good and evil, and you, you couldn't... Music was much more than music then. It was a huge part of rallies and funerals and protest marches and everything. So we did reflect those things. I mean, Boy Potong is directly inspired another country, and uh, that's really what that song is about. We always sat above... I think the way to put it is we sat above party political politics and we do that to the state oh, absolutely I mean, um, absolutely any sort of uh, it's that broad church thing i mean if and we We'd probably do the same with religion, you know, so there's no bring an imaginary friend either. Um, that was a weak joke. <laughs> so, um, it, but it was really just different people from all extremes in South Africa. I think there were a lot of artists that did incredibly well around that time, huge and way bigger sales than Mango. If you look at the Soul Brothers and the massive, massive catalogue sales, but somehow our demographic reach with a lot of help from from yourselves and Roddy and the team, that really was comprehensive. I do think we reached more South Africans at every persuasion and generation and political divide, and it's interesting, because mm. people read their own meaning into this thing. And we weren't being opportunistic or naff. We just, we did sit above it, even within the band. There were differences, and, you know, and that's, 
So in a word, yeah, so there was always that content, but it was sort of sitting above it in a way. When I said right at the beginning of this, I said that Mango was the soundtrack to democracy for me and for, I think, for many South Africans. Mm. So in that sense, I suppose in a way, it sits up there with you 2 in the Irish situation, mm. Bob Marley, Jamaican mm. situation. Yeah. Songs are eternal. Yes. Long, long after mm. artists are gone, songs, and there'll always be an inspiration. Did you ever feel any pressure from the authorities? Yeah. As, as, you know, it's about what are you doing, you know? Hey, what's in the fact, matter with you? Going yeah. back to help. Going back to Hellfire, right. that was a specific incident. So, in other words, Kevin was in the car with Mickey and a couple of us, and we got stopped at a military roadblock because we were in the middle of a state of emergency. Right. And it was an interesting thing because it wasn't like the guy was, you know, who are you, what are you doing? It was genuine, actually, <laughs> amazement. It's like, <laughs> what the hell are you doing together in a car? You know, it was like, what is going on? And that's actually what that song is about. There's a roadblock late at night. And a military, and a military man. You can see that we're together. He doesn't understand. And then through for us in the love yeah. You're done. Absolutely. Everybody plays Striking chords of memory In so many different ways Your love Burns me like a hellfire You being arrested. I was arrested. I got a little bit of uh, a little bit of cred there. Okay, a little badge of honor. I was dropping um, Jack off in uh, Soweto for because sometimes we rehearsed. Then I was dropping. I got arrested, and it's a fascinating story actually because I got arrested. They didn't know how to charge me, but essentially I was charged as a pass offender. Um, because I wasn't meant to be on that thing. So I, I went in the mellow yellow, the big van, and yeah. again, it was like a lot of people looking at me like, you know, we know why we're here. We didn't have a boss. What are why you doing are you? here? Yeah. I did the overnight jail thing, whatever. And the final funny twist, which was actually it was a bullet I dodged, was they, I was charged eventually with loitering. <laughs> Whatever that is. I've been doing that my whole life anyway. I didn't know it was a crime. Join the crime. But anyway, no, but the funny thing was, Benji, mm. it was translated out of Afrikaans into soliciting. <laughs> so I nearly spent years there, actually. Anyway, oh. funny story. Billy, we don't have a charge sheet. We can put that on the vinyl cover. I mean. <laughs> 
Did, uh, how did your black audience respond to you, bearing in mind that Quell and Marabi mm. were largely long forgotten forms of music mm. in mm. terms of younger people? Uh, what was the reaction? In some ways, it was uh, tough. There was that same measure of um, incredulity like, or amazement, you, which in fact doing? I had myself. You know, I mean, when we sold more than five copies, I, you know, I had the same look on my face. And we were very much against, we were in total market anomaly because you had very much that sort of African disco thing. You had the movement, you know, you had the Yvonnes and the sort of, and almost like the very keyboard synth pop stuff. And then you obviously had your more, which actually then were probably bigger sellers. You would know this, your Soul Brothers and your Ladysmiths and your more obviously vernacular um, things. So, yeah, we were very odd. I mean, it was, I think people did think it was a bit like, what are you dredging this stuff? In fact, the funniest thing was a, probably a generation later, we were doing a recording of Jack LaRoli and a young hip executive came in and it was a different so it was Jack Laroli recordings actually the last ones he ever did sadly this guy came and he said I know this music so I thought okay you're going to say um, you know what spokes my shiani he said yeah no, I am in this mango groove you know <laughs> <laughs> so we then became like even though we were a generation later so funny how these things work mm. we talked about the kind of resistance that you may have got from the authorities to what you were doing at that time, uh, I felt it definitely at the time of Graceland because mm. I met Simon. I yeah, was in wow. the studio when he was, yeah, talk, when he was doing Graceland at Zappel. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> and that's another story on its mm. own. Did you meet any resistance from the liberation movements? Because at that point, let's not forget – it still wasn't cool for South mm. African bands to go overseas and to represent this country. There was yeah. a lot of, particularly yeah. with, with the BC movement. Yes, yes. definitely. I, I personally felt some criticism from, from people sort of as if I was culturally appropriating a style of music. Um, which I took quite hard. I remember we were in Australia and um, there were some comments made about, you know, what's she doing and all of that. And I found that difficult to deal with. I took it personally, as mm, <laughs> yes, mm. I do. Um, so there was a bit of that, a bit of suspicion and, you know, what what's the relationship between, you know, the band members or people being treated fairly? I tell you it was a measure of that, – that's in terms of global audiences. That's a global thing. That was in a global of, thing. Uh, yeah, in yes. terms of South Africa, you did – you jumped through – you know, you consulted with the musicians. Union, you would know all these yeah. hurdles, or uh, I don't know you call it a hurdle, but any challenges. Oh, there's a good word. Challenge. Um, a couple of us had come out of that sort of its activism thing. So, our pedigree, in a way, I think there was a sense here from that movement, apart from the sort of BC wing, which obviously they objected to the the, you know, the Paul Simon stuff. I think there was a lot of buying. We did a lot of we did the Bishop Tutu inauguration concert. We did the end conscription campaign. So we had our roots as well in that sort of student protest politics thing and yeah you just but it was it was a minefield as well I mean you had to sort of navigate your way consult a lot you know as a young woman back then I found I found it difficult I felt like I was a politician mm-hmm. I felt like I was having to answer questions I was just doing what I believed in I was I was being young and, and, and passionate and there was a measure of skepticism when there was skepticism I, I mm-hmm. battled with it because I felt like I had to just explain myself all the time and mm-hmm. I battled with that with that a little bit so I had to my, my skin had to get a bit thicker. And also, I mean, you think globally now that is that strange um, pushback sort of linked to critical race theory and mm. identity politics and everything, which is, um, you know, it's uh, 
somehow you, you ring fence identity. It's like an art we were saying earlier when we were chatting. I mean, it absolutely feeds on influences. Mm. If you go back to Morabi itself, it had its roots in, in the big band sound of Glenn Miller and people. And sure. that's what music is. Definitely. I mean, the entire sort of melodic tradition in a lot of South African um, urban music is, is from the churches. Sure. The Methodist absolutely. So that's just the nature of art we see. So, but it's still a minefield. And if people sense opportunism, and I mean, there's opportunism in pop anyway. So, you know, it's always part of it. You know, you're influenced by things. And so, yeah, mm. various minefields and eggshells at the same time. I remember where we were when on the record, two singles in. Mm. Mm. Then came the big one. Yeah. I've said this in other interviews when I've been asked about Mango, and I've always said Mango were also there at the right time oh, totally. with that song yeah. because mm. the exiles were coming back. Mm. Um, there was this, this sense of hope yeah. mm. and, 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 and everything. And the video is so vibrant. Mm. I mean, how are you well, going there's to... another key character I would bring in, which is Nick Hoffmer. Right. Because he integrated that sort of funny 90s meets 80s, the old political footage, black and white, a sort of montage the little schoolgirl dancers. Nick really brought a focus to, to that and aesthetic through the special star video. Right. And we did a few of them. We did, um, you know, we did Island Boy and, and Home Talk and that. But he was yet another person who sort of pulled in this sort of fragmented thing, mm. the, uh, dissonant sort of in a way that worked. So, yeah, that was another key part. The video was a very big part of that Huge. song. You know? mm. Because then what happened literally mm. exploded. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's 30 years ago, but I still remember mm. 
the effect that it had on the record. All of a sudden, MFP were phoning up and going, we'll take 25,000. Yeah. You know, we yeah. you know, were yeah. going, oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. And I mean, it was a runaway. It was certainly the biggest record that I've had the pleasure of being involved in. Wow. Wow. Um, and I've got to tell you a story because when, when, when I used to go to America, I, I used to take a dat with me with, mm, with, with, oh, with, yes. with songs, South African songs on it. To remind me of where I came from while I was in a hotel Good room somewhere, mm. and Special Star was on there as well, mm. along with you know Philip Tabani and, and and stuff like that, just to remind me of where my roots were back mm. here. So the record explodes. <laughs> From that musical period, absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. So exactly. he must have and even that look, you know, yeah. that sort of uh, dapper dan, suit yeah, and your yeah. dapper dan, mm. you know. And in fact, strangely, when you've, you've you've just reminded me of another anecdote that when he was released from prison, walking out with Winnie, one of the global broadcasters of that event used one of our songs as the soundtrack to do it. So that was the that was the oh, song, yes. and that wow. was the song called "We Are Waiting," which was on the I Home Talk album, yeah. right? And an earlier version of that appeared. So there's a strange sort of touchstone there in a way that no, mm. yeah, it was a nice nice thing. So everything explodes the pressure's on tours dates i mean it, it, it must have been mad right. yeah it was and you know we, we you sort of just assume that this is how it goes for everybody mm. and you realize looking back it doesn't it was exceptional mm. we had an exceptional time and i'm increasingly grateful for it mm. but mm. it didn't stop there because then 
the second album came really yeah. quickly. Yes. Yeah. And it even went up a notch. Yeah. yeah. It, it became is. even bigger. Well, it's interesting looking at all the the stats we get every week from, uh, you know, streaming and all that sort of stuff. It's actually, well, at the Moments Away, which is actually consistently, which amazed me, it's mm. the second most streamed Mango song now. It's gone above Home Talk and um, yeah. and Dance and Horses. Rob's got a special star at the top. So it's fascinating, these things, yeah. you know. I think double platinum yeah, it was a, as well. Yeah, that had really. also had Island Boy. We were talking earlier about that <laughs> famous yeah. um, that famous party we had in the theatre yeah. in Orange Grove. <laughs> in Road. Orange Grove, I think I had the sand in theater. my yeah. I think I had sand in my clothes for months yeah, afterwards. It was crazy. A lovely reminder. It, it was. Mm. I mean, it, it's like being, and I guess for you, it, it, far more than for me, it must have been mm. like a roller coaster. Mm, it I mean, was. You, you know, uh, yeah, it was. It, it sort of was along, and you. I suppose you're not aware of it at the time. Actually, just looking at that party you spoke about, I mean, that was the thing. You know, the in terms of how labels would come to the the, the party then properly, and you know, we you, you'd have a launch, you'd do the stuff. It's just, a, and a lot of the people you dealt with were, you know, like yourself who lived, breathed music, and yeah. it was in we're them. Passionate. And you'd be surprised how many. People, in a way, don't always have that now in that business. It's 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 gone slightly more well, corporatized. I, I, you know? Well, I, I think you know, having seen how the industry works now, mm. there are very few people who are passionate about. No, yeah. and it's the, the number of songs that are released every day, you know, without fanfare. But we we heard sixty thousand songs a day go into the internet. Did you know that? No, sixty thousand new songs a day. 
That's insane. Mm. So there's no prioritizing of artists now. That's another discussion on its yeah. own. It's an interesting one, yeah. Artists are being shortchanged mm. by the industry in, yeah. in, in, on every level, and financially prices. and creatively yeah. and everything. Mm. But, I mean, so here we were. We had Island Boy. We had Moments Away. Mm. We had Home Talk. Mm. Just hit after hit after hit. I remember my radio people going, oh, another one, yay. Yeah. <laughs> and off we would go again, and the album would go up. Yeah. And then it, you know, you did all these international tours, yeah. um, and we did really, you know, arguably overreaching um, big South African tours, which we actually strange. We still hold records on those attendance records for because remember at a certain point with the lifting the cultural boycott in the market opening, but right. tours of South African acts we really did do. I suppose that fed as well into we did really big live show productions with dancers. It was the same sort of cost of thousands. You know? <laughs> And, eleven uh, apparently is not enough on stage. <laughs> we didn't go up to eleven. We went up way higher. But I mean, you, you did the, the the rock against racism in London. Yeah, uh, which oh, was, oh, that was in, it was in Paris. Yeah, yeah. in Paris. Yeah. Sorry, in yeah, Paris. No, that was amazing. Um, you did the Freddie Mercury tribute concert. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I remember seeing mm. that and being so proud. Yeah, you know, that really. there we were on the, mm. on this. I mean, <clears throat> that sense of going back to the soundtrack to mm. democracy. That sense of hope that we all had. Oh. Uh, at that time, Heady I mean, times. it's going to be okay. Yeah. And it has yeah. been to a large degree. Yeah. It has yes. been. Yes. If you think uh, what we came through. You know, if you look, exactly, it mm. didn't have to go. So then another country comes on. Um, I, I think a more serious album than Home mm. Talk and, and, yeah. and, 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 and the first album. Maybe and not all, so yeah. gung-ho party <clears throat> kind of things, although Moments Away was a very serious song. Yeah. To me, it was a mixed bag. I thought mm. that it strayed off in a couple of directions. Yeah, I think we lost focus happen. a little bit, maybe. Um, in yeah. a way, the fort was held by the more sort of obvious manga track, obviously, like another country and yeah. um, nice to see you and nice whatever. To, see so, but it was, to me, that was stand. a mixed. But yeah, we, I mean, it's still a key part of how we perform live. Very much so. Those nice to see you figure, goes down you know? well. Absolutely, yeah. I agree. Do you still do another country live? Yeah, we do. It obviously, if it's if a full show of hour and a half, two hours, definitely. You beside me I'll tell you no lies And then you'll see another country in my eyes If we could reach beyond the bounds of blame and make history blind And feel away these words This is all we'd find A mother's cries Fear in an old man's eyes A child's blood on the walls No 
nice to see you, obviously. You nice do. to see yeah. you. People, people, people do people love, love it. Yeah. <laughs> I can't stand it, actually. I can't stand it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the greatest of the songs. I hate their own songs. Well, I suppose when you've had to play it a few hundred or a couple of thousand times, yeah, it probably is a little taxing. It does but test you. You go, away, you go away from a recording project you've spent months, if not years, on. And it's so funny to come back to it sometimes because mm. you just tucked away or whatever and you know you go through the motions. But when you probably come back and listen properly, it is a combination of sort of. You're impressed, but you're horrified at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's like, a mixed thing. What were we thing. thinking? Well, actually, that wasn't too bad. It was a funny bipolar response you have to it. I, I always find that interesting. Mm. You, know? mm. you look at that three, those particularly a three-year period. That was stressful. Yeah. And I mean, if you if you look now these days, the the amount of mental fatigue mm. that artists are yeah. suffering from. I don't mm. know if you saw the mm. Lewis Capaldi thing. Yes. You know, who's suffering badly. Yeah. Uh, yes. um, Demi Lovato yeah. and various. <sighs> Did you, Claire, ever feel overloaded with mm. stress that, I, oh, my God, I can't, I just can't do this anymore? I've definitely felt all of those things and, and, and also the sense sometimes of just – not being good enough and, you know, the low self-esteem stuff, which, mm. you know, it's, it seems to be pretty much par for the course in, in this industry. And it's um, – so mental health issues are very close to my heart actually mm. in terms Look, of – I think that was another function of management that one tends not to think of as well, though. We were – there was a lot of careful protective management around us. Mm. So it was always quite a mm. good team in terms of, you know, again, another cast of thousands, but in terms of uh, – so in other words, that was – that was very effectively managed by Roddy as well in terms yeah. of insulating um, us to a degree. But, yeah, I know you take, you take the strain. Yeah, well, I mean, there was, I mean, what Roddy was very good at, is, mm. you're quite right, is isolating, mm. keeping the band as one unit, yeah. mm. the record company as one unit, yeah. mm. and the production team as, mm. uh, as another unit instead of, you know, propping up the bar at, at mm. the Thunderdome yeah. um, <laughs> on a Friday night and mm. getting into trouble and everything. Then you didn't eat a mango. You just had three massive mm. albums, and mm. Eat a Mango, again, to me, didn't sound as driven as another country. Well, in a way, the, even the national landscape was shifting then. We'd gone mm. sort of out of the sort of where music meant a lot, and you had the sort of good versus evil battle and the huge transition. You, we were into sort of, well, now we're trying to sort of create a rainbow oh, nation, rainbow nation no, thing. you know, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, I know that became a, a tired notion in a way. I think it was Bishop Tutu's phrase, actually, I think. Um, the, the, so, yeah, I think some of that came through. Bunza wasn't in the lineup then. Either, and I always mm. saw him as a very pivotal part of the mm. soundtrack of Manga. So, yeah, I would say I can look back on a couple that I was proud of or that we like, but generally mm. I, I think it was you get that um, – fatigue in a way of having been sort of flavor of the month for years yeah and then um you you know you start to enter the you, the realm of borderline self-parody actually which is always a worry <laughs> I'd, I'd agree with that it was sort of um and, and in a way what was the album off that was a bang the drum well that yeah that yeah. was what that pulled it right yeah, back to yeah. that is just pure manga the, yeah. the spirit of that album is the spirit of the first album actually, right. and actually i'm very fond of that album at that time of uh, with Eda manga i mean mm. you, you're right i mean you'd had this run mm. this incredible run yeah. i mean there very few artists anywhere in the world yeah. could have that kind of a run mm. but the nation changed as well yeah. the, the, that's the, right the, the landscape yes. of what was happening politically yeah. and socially and humanistically had changed mm. yes. and perhaps 
the buoyant feel of eat a mango. And actually internally, Benjamin, you would well know the story. I mean, structurally, we were into a sort of a new structure. Corporate yeah, we were sort of almost corporatized with a, briefly. You know, a couple of interesting characters. Who, you know, and, and that was, it was actually a period of relative unhappiness. It for was, us it was a difficult we time. We weren't comfortable Mm-mm. being in that structure. We thought, oh, great, take it to the next level. And we had, uh, you know, good backing behind us, but it didn't, uh, that was an additional. Uh, yeah. Because you, no, you went to Gallo, I think. At, uh, no, we, well, it was at, we, it was Gallo we, first. I think it was. EMI. I can't remember who. No, this was this was um, this, this was, was a, a company like a listed company that yeah. wanted to sort of bought into us, okay. yeah, and then wanted really wanted us to be run like a corporation where mm. we had to do timesheets and. No, just, no, it was you know, it was bonkers. Yeah. It was complete. It, it, and you, I mean, you had dealings with a couple of the personalities, and it was just people who weren't music people in a way. No, and, no, uh, no so they, they wanted ruin. they wanted the fair, fairy dust. Yeah. They yeah. didn't understand what it takes to make the fairy dust mm. and, and in, in some ways tried to corral us to, yeah. to the extent that we lost the ability to make fairy dust ourselves. Yeah, well, you just, can't bottle it, the lightning. No, no, I mean, no, it's, it's, strange, it's not something um, you can do. And it's a very strange ingredient to make good music. It's called happiness, you know. Oh, yeah. yes, and I find that that's... <laughs> It was one of those X Factor things. Actually, listen, depressives make very good music too. So. Depends what genre you're talking about. <laughs> Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen, Nick Drake. Um, Actually, you know, half the industry. Kurt Cobain. <laughs> Kurt Cobain. My favourite's Nick Drake. I mean, I okay. just, I just yeah. love Nick Drake. Um, going off on another tangent now, what, what was interesting about Mango was the cohesiveness of the writing, mm-hmm. um, and particularly on those those first three records. There was you and Alan and, mm-hmm. and Kevin Berta and later mm-hmm. – Claire, you started yeah. writing more as as, mm. as the projects went on, plus uh, Mdudusi and Sipa and Bunsi. Everyone yeah. seemed to pitch in. Yeah. How did the – it's always intrigued me. I always ask this mm. about writers. Yeah. How does it unfold? If you look at a lot of the Mango songs, they've got several names after the song. Mm. What tends to happen is there's generally a dominant writer or two dominant writers. And what we did, though, is we started to credit people whose instrumental input was there as well. If you think of a song, it's lyrics and um, music, you know, yeah. sort of top line, melody and all that sort of stuff. Whereas a lot of, say, like the horn lines and things like that would come, I mean, Sipo would come up with something or Bunza would come up with something. And th- that would be reflected in, in I mean, not... A dominant way. So in terms of, as I said, with a lot of um, those songs, you would see many names after the thing. And it's not like today where you can get 30 writers on a song because they've each contributed one note from around the world (laughs) and they've never met each other. You get that sort of team thing going on. This was very much, I mean, it was an organic process, but generally there would be a sort of a dominant writer or two dominant writers. And then if those other influences came in. So um, I was, uh, this is a, a tangent on a tangent, Benji. This is a story of the guy watching a soccer bo- game with his, with his son. And uh, the, the little boy's watching. And he said, oh, that bloody goalie's let another. He keeps, the father keeps on complaining about the goalie. And I said, oh, well, the goalie, well, you know, it's a, this is a huge, it's Manchester United, whatever. And the father's swearing, whatever. And it's, you know, it's 4-0. And oh, it's this goalie, you know. And he said, you know, I don't know why he's even even in the team, you know. And the son turned to him and said, well, maybe it's his ball, Dad. <laughs> so anyway, I had the ball with me. <laughs> so maybe that allowed me to muscle in more on the writing. <laughs> but generally, you know, sequentially, I mean, Kevin was a very significant early writer on Mango. And actually throughout, I mean, he's a phenomenal, dominantly lyricist, but he's a mm. great songwriter. And actually a huge influence on me, the way he writes. I really, I have the highest regard from, in any sense, you know, here or around the world. He was probably the next dominant thing, but equally doozy. 
I mean, Doozy's writing, Doozy Penny Whistler. Mm. There's some Jack LaRoli stuff in there in terms of creating the stamp from the early years. But uh, Doozy, if you think between Penny Whistle and Marabi Party, and of course Special Star, which mm. he is the dominant writer. And, yeah, he, he's truly seminal. Somebody comes in like Alan would come in with a piano track and yeah. go da 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 and yeah. then scribble scribble scribble. Yeah. Did, were you more thing? a lyricist, Claire? Than, than no, I mean, for instance, my, I think one of my proudest moments is the only thing I like about "Nice to See You," which is "Hey yeah." <laughs> That's actually the only thing I like. You should have just had the whole song. Claire. So yeah, and it is, I'm going to play that song as part of this interview. But it, it is a thing. It's an interesting speculation because you know, songwriters we tend it is dominant. Okay, who wrote the lyrics? who wrote the, the melody of right. the, you know, the, the yeah. lyrics thing to. But actually, you think of Jerry Rafferty, Baker Street, you think of um, the sax line in Careless Whispers, and, you know, at a certain point, sometimes just even an instrumental piece, and for, I don't know whether he was a session player who came in and they liked the line, but those do make the part of songs. But and if very you listen, often you only find out afterwards. Yeah, no You sure. know, it's no, hindsight where you go, oh, my goodness, but that makes yeah, the song. That is the song, you know. And it, and, but yeah. in the t- at the time, in, in, in the moment, mm. you're supposed to really just as you say mm. credit melody and lyrics and yeah. dominantly chorus and yeah. then of course verse and but bridge often, and o- middle o- eight. often it's not chorus mm. and, no. and not verse it's something it's art yeah exactly like um black sunshine's born in a taxi yeah, do, yes. do, 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 yeah do, it's do. exactly that exactly yeah. that's the hook there's the hook you know? mm. no. oh, what's the matter with you you know yeah there's yeah. a very it was a beautiful song out a couple of years ago by lost frequencies called are you with me mm-hmm and I mean, it's fascinating. It's actually a country song. And they took a little part of that, that country song and they um, turned it into, into a sort of a loop. For me, one of the greatest love songs ever written. So I traced the original. But I mean, the, the remix where they've literally grabbed a little bit, I think it's got like 500 million views on YouTube. And this poor guy, the country host, got about 4 million. It's right. just funny how these, <laughs> you're right, it's these little bits of a song. Little bits just, of a song. You know, but after Eat a Mango... 14 well, years? Alan was actually gone by Issa Mango, wasn't he? Yeah. Yes, he was. Yes, yeah, yeah, John yeah. Larker was playing with us, actually. Yeah. Yeah. 14 years. Oh. What happened? Your what hi- did happen? Hi- you what? had a hiatus? All of a sudden, I mean, nothing happened. Nothing yeah. happened. We, uh, what were you doing? We, we recovered, to be honest, we were licking our wounds after the relationship with the, yeah, the company, the corporate, the corporate thing. That was okay. brutal, where, yeah, we weren't allowed to work for a while. I think it was, I just felt like it was time for me to do something on my own. 
Mm-hmm. And I that's felt, when you went solo. And that's why I did some solo stuff. Exactly. And I did a couple of dabbles, and so it was a little bit of that going on. But Manga yeah. never broke up. It was just sort of no, that's like right. a backburner. Yeah. yeah, always on so the back. So the solo career that you had with Fearless and, yes. and and the others was that you trying to carve a new identity? Very for much yourself so. Absolutely. As I, an I felt you know, and that was so difficult. It was difficult to escape Mango. Because people certainly here expected me to sound like Mango Groove. And of course, I was deliberately wanting to do something 100% different and, and try different styles of music, which was an interesting experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you think that Mango was over at that point? No, no never. Never. You never no, thought I mean, that. I mean, Mango is my musical home. No, right. no question about it. So, but it's nice to, as a performer, which I'd always intended to be, to try different things. Mm. And actually, um, that's a spectacular album, Fearless. I mean, oh, and it's a, a lot was thrown Actually, yeah. I really do give credit to Joe as to, in terms of the, the amount oh, he of money. Oh, you spent a lot of money on it. Sort of Absolutely. I, it possibly faltered at the stage of, I don't know. Marketing. Which, which the marketing felt yeah. That was, I think, the yeah. problem there. Yeah, but a I really often beautiful album. Yeah. Not many, I said earlier, not many bands anywhere in the world have been able to sustain a career over 30 years. Mm. Uh, and that's not how it works in pop music mm. um, <laughs> generally. What do you think... Mango's secret ingredient is that it's lasted so long. I think it's a strange thing, and I spoke about dissonance earlier, and uh, that again sounds very pretentious. For, it's my eighties uh, new romanticism coming in here. I think if you had to sort of a, a guiding mantra for our whole career, because I mean there are many aspects to Mango. It's like, did we do as much as we could have done internationally? No. I mean there was a lot of those sorts of things. What was the difference? You know why? And and you know against other South African artists, those sorts of things. I've always thought that our biggest strengths are equally our biggest weaknesses. So in mm. other words, the size of the lineup is glorious mm. it limits touring in a, you know <laughs> that sort of thing so um and also our biggest strength is, is nothing actually and i see it in a lot of artists like lady smith um nothing sounds like mango groove now that means that you either hate it or, or you love it in a way and i, I think it's it's it, it is a distinctiveness i think the distinctiveness comes from the particular funny cocktail of sounds definitely comes out of claire's voice you've got the distinctiveness of the penny or so so in a way i think that's what it is it's sort of its own as much as it's drawn of many genres it's sort of its own thing you know what i mean and it's, uh, it's like the gypsy kings or you know you get these sort of very identifiable things We've always been governed by pop. I mean, I, you know, if I get to buy an album, I want the best song. I'm not, a, I'm not an anorak particularly mm. in that way. I mean, I love all forms of music, but so it's in a way we've always been slaves to that fairly sort of okay. Apart from Special Star, which is an oddball, uh, that's another sort of commercial suicide. You think how did that happen? Because it was so long and everything. But generally, the the, the, the universals of good arrangements get to the point, get to the chorus. Uh, you know, it's that. So in a way, I, hopefully that just creates a sort of a, it rolls over different generations. And we've been lucky with that. And we've been amazed. We started with the Oppie Copy through the Rocking the Days. We started to do those big festivals where we thought we were going to get things thrown at us. <laughs> Blow us down, you know. I mean, there, were, there would be, uh, Oppie Copy was 22,000 drunk 22-year-olds, mostly. Or, and they loved it. Singing, well, they singing the, the songs. songs. They Did they throw any underwear? No. <laughs> Damn, no. <laughs> Have you ever had underwear thrown at you? We threw some underwear yeah. at them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have. Oh, have you? Okay. Okay. dear. But also, it's what you mentioned. It's about being the soundtrack to the to, to that transition. There is, you know, we were very lucky in that sense. As much mm. as it, it made us unlucky in terms of maybe re- traveling abroad more, what it did do for us is it gave us um, a special place in South Africans' hearts during mm. that. During well, that it time. had such a cultural impact. Yeah. 
at the time. And across the board. Yeah, across the board. board. And and at the right, it's like the stars aligned Mm. in in one moment Mm. for you. Very much so. What more could you hope for as an artist? No, you're right. Luck is a huge part of it. Now, getting back to that that, that very sort of, uh, you spoke about the coexistence of sort of politics and pop. Mm. We were never consciously political. At the same time, there was content there. Mm. And the absolute bizarreness in a way only made sense in South Africa because at that time of South Africans, dissonance and opposites, everything was just thrown in. So in other words, you know, a sort of a glamorous, sexy pop band, which singing about Boy Patron and also selling you Coca-Cola and chewing gum. It was like a very odd. <laughs> it sounds terrible. But it actually worked. Oh, the, forgot the, about no, the beaches, Anne. <laughs> no, but I mean, the intention was there because that's mm. what South Africa was. You lived, breathed and died the whole thing and all its sort of contradictions. And I think that was another sort of a jangling dissonance that maybe outside markets didn't get. In a way, you could get a Johnny Clegg, Mm. you could get a a Maslatini that was not pigeonholed because they were they're great artists and great songs it was almost it was definable it was it was a uh, something you could feel familiar with mango mm. was a strange like what is this thing is it pop mm. band is mm. it whatever you know what are they serious or you know are they all contrived it was uh, that sort of thing so. but you say that i mean but you did tour yeah we did, a lot. We did. voraciously yeah. and yeah. i mean you you I, I think you did the atco convention and yeah, we did with we did. pop with Iggy Pop. That was quite yeah. a moment. <laughs> and he was so loud that everyone left. I would lo- <laughs> it was I would- so loud. He was so loud. I mean, loud. I'm deaf, you know. So. Uh, That's why you're deaf. <laughs> that was the Iggy Pop concert, yeah, I remember. I, um, I often wonder what the Americans made of it. I mean... They really like... They sort of... Yeah, they like. They seem to really like it, didn't they? It reminds another one because... We were always in a way, as much as you had the sort of punk thing and the integrity and the, you know, that sort of thing we think of as serious, you know, with those deep-rooted African <laughs> urban influences and everything, we were equally, we were as much Boney M or as much... You take that right no, back. No, as much, uh, I know, I'm a huge Boney M fan, but I we were as much, um, or, or Swing Safari, so there's that element of sort of cheese and camp and poppiness. It was always part of Mango, and it, mm. it was something, one of the many influences we celebrated, you know. It's, I love cheese, you know, I mean, it's one of my favourite songs are cheesy, and uh, so, yeah, it was a very, it's a very odd cocktail, I have to say. Um, Frank Farian got involved with Mango, remember that? No. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, wanted to, he wanted to remix special stuff. Yeah. Thank God you didn't. Yeah, no, actually, you are right. But yeah, you might have, I might have found I wasn't going to be singing on the album. <laughs> <laughs> no, we went and met him in a studio then. In fact, he played us his latest recording, which was... Millie Vanilli. Millie Vanilli, mm. nice and easy. And I remember, you know, Frank Farron, whatever you say, he had good grooves, thank God. And, you know, he's the male voice on Boney M. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. absolutely. And, um, yeah, we met him then. A very strange thing. He speaks perfect English, but insisted on speaking, speaking German. German mm. uh, while his, his publisher translated. But anyway... <laughs> Life on the road with Mango Groove. Flight, car, hotel, gig, Mm. hotel, flight, car, repeat, repeat, repeat. Did you go crazy with that? And does it make you insane? I mean, did you feel you didn't? I I mean, I, I, you know, you sort of get into a bit of a a zone with the whole thing. I think what I struggled with sometimes was just lack of sleep and Mm. losing my voice. That was always an issue, particularly if you're traveling time zones. I remember when we were touring Australia and we'd fly from Sydney to Perth and that would mean you'd, you'd be up schmoozing all night until two in the morning. You'd try and get two hours sleep, but you have an early morning flight. So th- no sleep. Mm. And then your voice eventually just goes, just goes away. 
<laughs> but there must so have been a lot of fun me. on the road. Oh, oh, you get all huge, that and, you know, huge the pillow fun. fights. And we didn't throw any TVs out the window. No, we, we never did that. <laughs> no, we drove the helicopters. I think they did that once. Oh, they did. They put state the helicopters. Didn't they? They were insane. Bernard Bernard, absolutely. Oh, wow. I never knew that. I mean, actually, I must, you know, I must put this in because, you know, Mango today is obviously people have come and gone and whatever, but the spirit has remained, same lineup and wherever. It is a sort of organized chaos. So you talk about touring that. And it's to me, it's a stronger lineup than it's ever been because we're just comfortable in our skins. You know, it's a bit of a F around, you know, and you do that stuff. But the, those logistics can be tricky because, you know, we often speak about herding cats. Herding cats, cats yeah. Occasionally herding drunken cats. You know, it's like <laughs> one of those. But it just works. It's a strange, uh, yeah. There's a strange. I mean, when you you don't obviously gig like you used to gig. I mean, you, you you're mm. now picky about what you do. Do you do you still rehearse before you do a show? Do you get nervous? I always get nervous because every nervous. gig is different, and you can right, never yeah. assume it's going to be okay because you don't know. It's a different audience every time. It's eleven people on stage. The chemistry shifts. Although it's mostly something I mostly trust, but no, I still mm. de- definitely get nervous. As does John. Yeah, we, we pretty much don't rehearse. I'm but not we, telling you that in all honesty. No. Well, <laughs> once we've got the sort of show set up for the sort of the next year, it's sort of then it's rehearsed and then off it goes. It trundles no. along, and you know. And uh, are you in control of your own bookings and everything? Else? Now, I mean, do you? Our agent Leon, who we've been with for a long time, he's okay. based in Germany, but he, you know, everything. I mean, what, yeah, he's he organized an app. An app. Yeah, <laughs> he handles that very well. In a way, we're self managing because we are unmanageable and strange. Yeah, no, we're ungovernable, unmanageable. <laughs> well, I think, other than Roddy, I don't think you had another manager, did you? We worked briefly with uh, Hazel, Hazel Feldman. Oh, Hazel Feldman, that's right, there. I, I remember mean, it's, that. You know, we did, but is it, I mean, we are, um, again, you know, strengths and weaknesses, we are, uh, actually mainly me, are compulsive interferers, you know what I mean? It's that strange thing, so yeah, I wouldn't wish us on anyone, actually, or wish me on anyone, that should we clarify. <laughs> What are you listening to these days? What are you listening to, Claire? I'm all over the place. I mean, I'm making sort of playlists and things, and it's a lot of the stuff I, I get is from watching, is from Shazamming Netflix and right. Showmax and things like that. Um, so that's how I pick up on a lot of the stuff that I'm listening to. So, But I'm all over the place. I, I'm i just a fan of a, of a good song. I'm a fan of mm. conviction. The song is king, isn't it? Yeah, but if there's, mm. if there's, if there's, the like, song is God, if there's absolutely. absolutely, and if there's a really great Voice, then of course I'm e- even more entranced if it's, if it's a fantastic interplay between the the, the, the rhythm, rhythm section that and then there's a hook there that that also grabs me. And you, John, what are you listening to? Also, all over a lot of um, sort of retro stuff I do just because I lo- and, and you know I I love a song in whatever genre. I mean I love I love country music and um, I, I've been listening to a lot of interestingly enough the, the whole sort of Pan African thing and some of the more recent say Nigerian tracks come out. You know, I don't like the sort of bling part of it, mm, but mm. Um, really pretty music forms, you know. And if you know, and songs just pop up as really great, and I'll watch it twenty times. I think of you know if I'm thinking back to say Kelly Kamalo here, mm. she did that song called Asine, and I just love that thing to death. So I I lock into a particular song, and I'm very driven by melody. That's that mm. largely draws, but equally it's anything from punk to thrash to whatever you know talking about African music I mean Nigeria is really making huge strides um, internationally Mm. why are we not up there I mean I know Mm. there's an interest in I'm a piano if you look back to when you first started Mm. you think Mm. you talked about Bright Blue you talk about Sabuka and Johnny Blue Air Void Bavia Africa Mm. um, Mango Groove incredible South African music Mm. right it was unique to South Africa and in a, at another time, 
in another uh, place, yeah. we would have been huge. Mm. If it were yes, as good definitely. as Duran Duran, yes. and could have been um, massive. Asylum I agree. Kids, I Asylum kids. Kids. Why do you think we not? I mean, are you still in tune with what's happening here? I mean, musically? I mean, why are we not making inroads anymore? I don't know. I'm almost feeling like there's no center anymore. Mm. There's, and we're not particularly supported by art and culture. No, no, um, that's true. I think that's an issue. I, I, I honestly can't answer that question. I just look, know that something is de- is definitely sort of lacking. Look, also just the, the global thing of how do you break out of your own country? Are, are you yeah. so distinctive that that becomes an impediment? Or does it make you competitively different in a good way in other markets? So, you know, I mean, ask Cliff Richard. I mean, he's, he still hasn't broken the states. <laughs> I don't think he ever will. You know, so, no. I mean, it's just, um, yeah, it's all, I agree with you, Benji, in terms of you can look back and think, well, actually, History worked against you, you know, and um, definitely with Bright Blue, you know, great writers. And you just hear these fantastic, uh, you know, the newer writers now, okay, Prime Circle, Lesney, I mean, uh, he's just a great, he's a great uh, you know, the yeah, things that you, you sort of feel if she always gets what you want, stunned by Nickelback, it would be a, a world smasher. And I felt that about a few songs. I mean, um, I think Matthew Mole's a great writer. Yeah, it's also just that cultural and market protections of anyway. Song, maybe songwriting. I've always thought that a song transcends borders and nations and everything. And I just find the standard of writing and, yeah. and, and also the lack of support from the industry. I mean, artists used to be the kings and queens mm. and labels yes. uh, had to put out what the artist yeah. delivered without any changes. Mm. And that worked. That, that dynamic worked. I think now... Mm. It's just the standard of writing. I listen. I listen to radio and, mm. and YouTube all yeah, the time. Me too. Yeah. And I go, oh god, this is so boring. But, you, mean, but then you know, I mean, there is that formulaic thing going on. And I mean, you've always had formulaic writing. Sure. You can go back to Carol King and all that. You know, you had these songwriting teams that would churn it out. But there was something more there. I think when you've got thirty writers on a song, they're doing the usual three chords using the same eight oh eight snare sound or whatever. You get that sameness. And I can listen to songs and I think it's a really skillfully written song, but it's not moving me on a. And when I I still gravitate towards where you can get the sense it's one or two people expressing themselves, you get that with Ed Sheeran, for instance, you get it with Adele, probably Coldplay as well. You get those artists where you really get a sense of human content, Mm. not a sort of semi-bot driven AI collaborative whatever, you know. Mm. So I think it's still it's the same factor. The song should move you in any context. And so if I find anything Lacking apart from those sort of us, it is that sort of formulaic. But it's also, as, as you were saying, it's the sheer number of songs that are released mm. on a daily basis. How yeah. do you compete again? How do you get in there? And in fact, How do you make an impact? If this statistic is right, I think only 30% of the global music market now in terms of turnover, whatever, however you turn, is new music. Mm. So you've got that 70%, which is catalogue. And that means something because the songs were different. You know, it's something, mm. it had weight. It had the, the association of memory and what you associate with sure. it. And you look at these massive publishing buyouts and, you know, who's top of the pile? It's Queen. It's Sting, you know. And and look at live shows. Yeah. Live shows, are, it's, it's the, well, it's that's the where big, all the acts. Yeah, well, that's where, and that's where artists and that's where they, are benefiting. So they're making money. not making a, money off, off yeah. streaming. No. You know, and it's no. not a young industry, strange enough. I mean, it, no. it tolerates, thank yeah. God, tolerates <laughs> older people, you know. <laughs> Well, the so. fact that it's catalog-driven is good for Mango Group because you've yeah, got this wonderful, this yeah. wonderful catalog. Yeah. Uh, so the sound of the songwriting is so bad. Even Agadoo's starting to sound yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> sounds Take like a classic. You know? Look, I actually love all of those. <laughs> don't, don't ask him. <laughs> you know, you know, sort of, I hate it, but I wish I'd <laughs> Where to now, Mango Groove? 
a funny mixture of, you know, I live my whole life basically assuming that the best years are ahead of me. Um, I run on <laughs> I love pure delusion. So um, I think there's a lot, as you mentioned, the catalogue thing. So some of our stuff is backward looking from the point of view of how do you consolidate a catalogue? We look at those vehicles in terms of movies, stage music, you know, the whole way you would take a fairly monolithic catalogue and, and, and give it new life. So that's something we're working a lot on is almost like legacy stuff. But equally, we're just looking at how we puts them out there that's different or collaborative or uh, and it's tricky you know I mean to stick mm. your head up and make a point we, we're lucky in that we are known but it's very you know it's tough out there so we're sort of skirting it and thinking mm. how do you you don't want to sound like a parody of yourself you don't suddenly want to funk yourself up uh, you know the sort of mm. mutton lamb thing with some young <laughs> rapper doing so you know that can all so it's a delicate creative line to sort of tread I think so we I mean we're, we're looking at various options and I said some of it looks forward some of it looks back but a stage show on on Marabi Stoke Quella, all of uh, that, all of that sort of thing yeah. is always a possibility yeah. as well. Mm. Of it doing is definitely that. where we're, you know, we're, we're fishing and you know, pitching and hustling. John Layden, Claire Johnson, so cool to have you. Benji, thank, thank you, you. thank you so much. So lovely. We could go on for another hour easily. Yeah. easily. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Thanks for, for everything. My thanks to Gallo Record Company and Gallo Music Publishers for granting us permission to feature excerpts from the Mango Groove catalogue. Nice Mango Groove's music is available on all digital streaming and download platforms. From the Hip with Benji Moody is brought to you by Solid Gold Podcasts. I've not heard it before. Let it play on.